Pods, and welcome to Hiding Behind the Music Stand. I'm your host, Patty Ryan, and with me is John Bean, who is a section violinist of the Milwaukee Symphony, and we'll be talking about his joy for making cocktails for friends and entertaining guests. Welcome, John. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Patty. Good to see you again. How are you? Of course. So, we met through a mutual friend, and I guess at this point, probably very close friends of both of us, Alejandro Duque. Yeah, yeah. Who, for me, he's been a longtime best friend from undergrad mm. and you met him through the symphony mm-hmm. Mil- milwaukee symphony yes uh, did you guys join the same year we joined the same year i had a glancing interaction with him at his audition wait were you at the same audition no 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 i had already won my audition and i was stepping with the orchestra and i was staying with me and Alejandro's mutual friend, Lija. And oh, then he, for whatever reason, the audition ran long, and then he needed a place to stay for the evening, and then he stayed with Lija while Got I was it. staying in her apartment. And we had met afterwards, after he found out he won, and then we had yeah. a drink, and then, yeah. And then we met uh, when the season started, and we became very fast friends, very close friends. It's currently my roommate, yeah. moving out soon. Right. <laughs> But yeah, we met, I think, in Minnesota. We went and watched a movie together. We went and watched mm-hmm. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And we also got tacos, which you and I had described as somewhat okay. When, <laughs> when I was so excited to show you this taco place that my brother showed me. And you That's and- <laughs> right. And you premised it as like, this is the best Mexican food yeah. in Minnesota. And you, you two were the- extremely nonplussed by the whole experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have to understand. You have to understand that I come from San Diego. Yes. Um, comes from San Antonio. So it's like the two pinnacles of Mexican food. Exactly, yeah. Getting shown tacos by some Midwestern Minnesota boy. They were... (laughs) They were definitely, they're okay. Yes, <laughs> like, yeah. they, you could pass them. And actually, there was another time that Alejandro, when he was staying here with me, we went back to that place. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so good enough for, like, a repeat? Yeah, that's fair. That's good enough for me. That's... Okay, I'm, but I'm, we went, yeah. it, was more out of, it was more out of convenience than it was. <laughs> oh, you didn't have to add that. That's very rude. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Despite all the similarities of having Alejandro as close friends of each other's, and you just mentioned you are from Minnesota originally. Mm, yeah. And there's little things along the way that I realized that we actually have more overlap than I had originally thought when I first met you, oh, which yeah. is being a product of the Artaria Chamber Music School. Yes. Yes. And Stringwood? And String. I went to Stringwood one year. Right. Yeah. You are now colleagues with my teachers. Right. <laughs> Can you tell me what your most insane performance story is? Yes. I'm going to laugh about it a little bit now because I know everything ended up okay. And I was on tour with the Detroit Symphony when we went to Asia. We went to Japan and China. I think it was like one of the first couple concerts that we were playing in Japan. And like I said, she's totally fine and very healthy person now. But when we were playing the overture, we were playing Candide. And Japan was extremely hot that summer for whatever reason. And like given the stress of traveling and all the bus rides. And we were told only to drink bottled water when you travel internationally just be safe. Mm-hmm. Anyways, during the opening for a couple of phrases of Candide, I hear just this gigantic commotion behind me. And I'm playing all these notes and I look, I peek behind and I see the harpist has completely collapsed on stage off her oh chair God. on the floor. And two of these percussionists, Andres and Joe, they like put down their sticks and they rush over there and they're carrying her by her legs and her arms. But, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, is the, the whole, concert still going? <laughs> the concert is still going. 
And meanwhile, like, the half of the orchestra that has all this in direct eyesight is staring and, like, watching all this happen. And all these other violinists and the people around me are trying to turn around and look. And the conductor's kind of freaking out. Meanwhile, we're plowing through Candide. And yeah. It was just a very odd... Yeah, like I said, she's totally fine. I think it was a combination of, like, the heat and not drinking enough water and just the stress yeah. of the whole situation. Yeah. But Talk now, about the show must go on, though. Right. But now, now in hindsight, it kind of served as a hilarious backdrop to like all the comical candied writing in the beginning sure so i guess it was rather thematic i i had no idea what to do all of a sudden there are like significant gaps in the music now and nobody knows what right. to do and everybody's just well we take per- out two percussions and a harpist in that piece it's like <laughs> there's yeah, yeah that's pretty significant yeah and like everybody's attention is diverted and yeah it was a very very exciting moment we were very concerned for a long time and yeah she turned out to be okay she played the rest of the tour and yeah well, I'm glad to hear that she's okay. Definitely, but that's, I remember that very clearly. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Tell me about your cats, My Pamina cats. and Money. Yeah, I have two cats. They're very, very cute. Very food-oriented cats. I think they're a couple of years old now. They're still very small. The first one, Pamina, was the first one we got. Kyoko has wanted a cat for years and years and years. And so we had decided, okay, let's just go down to the Humane Society down in Cleveland. Kyoko's my partner. And we were, we were in CIM at the time, and we went down to the Humane Society just to go look at him, and Pamina was being adorable. She kept chasing around this little ball in her cage, and she was purring a lot, and every time I threw the ball, she'd go run after it, bring it back, and instantly, Kyle and I fell in love, and this whole time, I've been my entire life, like, super, super allergic to cats. Like, oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm, yeah, so when I when I come in contact with them, my sinuses flare up, and, like, my eyes can't stop watering and itching. Sometimes when they scratch me, like, it gets a little swollen. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, kind of like a mosquito bite. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we... We got this kitten because we both love it so much. And I just have, like, a horrible time. (laughs) But, like, a good... Like, we had seven to ten days. I was just, like, sneezing nonstop. Like, my nose is constantly congested. My eyes wouldn't stop itching. But then after, like, a couple weeks, things just kept getting better and better. What? (laughs) Yeah. Well, my original plan was to go get, like, allergy shots and, like, get rid of Mm -hmm. the allergy with help of a doctor. Yeah, but then after a couple weeks, like, I just wasn't allergic anymore. And then just... That is insane. I've never Mm -hmm. heard that before. (laughs) Yeah, like, to this day, I'm so fine. Back then, if I would leave leave for like a couple weeks and then come back I would get some symptoms again but mm-hmm. yeah now now even if I leave for a couple months without seeing them and I come back it's yeah I'm completely fine so I guess I kicked the allergy that, that I mean <laughs> If that could ha- work with everyone, then I'd say everyone who is allergic to cats get a cat now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially a kitten, right? Something yeah, you can fall sure. in love with very deeply, very quickly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. then what's the story behind money? Oh, money was, I think we just wanted Pamina to have a companion because both of us mm-hmm. were out of the apartments for so long every day. We just felt bad leaving this cat alone at home. So we went and go look for another kitten. Money we found at our vet in Milwaukee. Oh. And yeah, he was very cute. He kept trying to jump out of the cage into mm-hmm. people's arms. He would nuzzle Aww. up next to the cage whenever approached, and then if you open it up, he would jump up onto your chest and kind of like crawl around you. And we yeah. so we're like, okay, let's like let's go into the room and try to see what's going on with this cat. And he just kept missing all of his jumps when we were in this like little playroom. Like he would try to jump <laughs> from one table to another, and he would completely miss, like clip his jaw on the edge of the table and oh, fall geez. down on the ground. And 
then just get up and, yeah. you know, not react and then just try to jump somewhere else. <laughs> it's just so yeah, yeah, yeah. dopey and cute that we, yeah, we loved him too. So then we got him, brought him home. We read that when you try to introduce cats to each other, you're supposed to do it very slowly. You're right. supposed to keep the kitten in like a separate room for like a few days just to let the other cat know that there's like another cat around. Mm-hmm. But we were very confident and <laughs> we just kind of let the two cats loose in the apartment and Tamina who is like three four times the size of this little kitten was just bullying him non-stop for a good like 10 days she would do this thing where money is extremely curious and keeps like walking around the apartment and she would just box him into a corner and he would oh my god he wouldn't know a way to get around her and she would just hiss non-stop at this little kitten oh my god (laughs) yeah and he didn't seem like kind of terrified he just like kind of wanted to like get around and like just keep on his day (laughs) meanwhile Pamina was extremely standoffish and very very aggressive and then she never attacked or anything but she was definitely holding her ground interesting animal behavior (laughs) but perhaps maybe next time yes (laughs) yeah I think next time we'll do what everybody says you're supposed to do Yeah, so, but not, but after a few days, they, they bonded a lot, and they started cuddling and grooming each other, so it turned out okay, okay but definitely was a little <laughs> tense in the household. The first. For... <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. Are you ready for some Spitfire questions? Yes. Okay, Mahler or Bruckner? Ooh, Mahler. Debussy or Ravel? Ravel. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh! <laughs> really? Yeah, I'm wondering if Kyoko's going to hear this, but yes, dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Appetizer or dessert? I'll go with appetizers. Sparkling or still water? Sparkling water. Fan favorite question, alternate universe musical instrument. I would play the piano. Oh. I like the piano a lot. I think it's a ridiculous instrument. because <laughs> It's just a bunch of buttons. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh-oh. Like, Maybe Kayako should not listen to this episode. <laughs> no, I've talked, to, I've talked to her at length about this. <laughs> but that's <laughs> okay. like the magic of the piano, right? It's like, yeah, it's true. you know, every every other instrument, there's like kind of an opportunity to like bend your pitch, which makes it very human feeling. With the piano, <laughs> it's like so, so unbelievably mechanical how to make a sound, you know? Yeah. Like you press down on a thing and a thing hits another, like, and the fact that you can like make that sound like velvet, it's very amazing to me. So yeah, I, I, see. I choose a piano. Well, that's a very artistic response after an initial <laughs> button pressing <laughs> description. I yeah, I stand by that statement. I think the piano is just a bunch of buttons, but yeah. <laughs> Early bird or night owl? I think I know the answer. Oh, night owl for sure. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> pandemic guilty pleasure. When I was baking bread during the pandemic, I would eat like a full loaf of bread by itself. Ooh, that sounds so <laughs> nice though. Just, just by itself? With, no, with butter or olive but, oil. But like yeah. I would over maybe like in two hours. I'll have baked like a big loaf of bread, like a country sourdough loaf of bread, and I will have Ugh. eaten the entire thing. With, like you're making me hungry. Half a, half a stick mean, of butter, or, like a cup yeah. of olive oil. Oh, yeah. Sure. It was so delicious. I mean, there's nothing much better in life than bread and butter. I or agree. Bread and olive oil. Yeah, I so agree. You're Favorite living your best food. life. Favorite food. Yeah. That would be my <laughs> desert island food. Oh well, interesting. Favorite professor shout out. Oh, uh, Peter Soloff. Oh. He brought a lot of joy in music for me. 
and he's constantly an inspirational person but he definitely he maintained this kind of idea of like you need to be having a good time when you're playing and collaborating with people uh-huh. a lot of times i notice especially in grad school when i'm working on music it was very like i would say like academically mission based like i need to achieve this goal using all means necessary and that sometimes it you kind of lose your way in thinking that you shouldn't be having a good time or one of the means in which to achieve that goal is to find the joy in it right mm-hmm. and pierself always was very much encouraging us to have joy in the music and to love it very deeply and fully oh i miss him very much yeah most inspired musical hero of any genre well i mean there's so many like different people this is a truth statement <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> one of them this drummer named Larnell Lewis. A lot of people know him from Snarky Puppy. He plays with Snarky Puppy a lot on the gotcha. on their Lingus album. Yes, amazing. A, a lot of amazing drum solos on there. Just hearing him talk about music and choices in music and his approach is very inspiring to me because he is one part extremely clinical, unbelievably demanding in like the fundamentals, but also has that feeling of needing to have joy or pushing like that certain character through his drumming or to have some sort of concrete idea of what you're going for through sound which i think is the bedrock of what it means to be like a fulfilled musician is to translate your thoughts and your feelings and your characters through your sound mm-hmm. i'm sensing a huge theme with you uh, oh yeah well because if you thought a piano was mechanical drumming can be oh yeah considered even more mechanical right because mm-hmm. there's without pitch right and also when you're talking about peter soloff too it's of like you know you have to know your technical facility you have to know how the instrument works but it's pairing it with facilitating your voice through these technical yeah instruments or ways of con- yeah anyway i just yeah. i'm sensing this overall theme so far yeah i mean yeah that was like a lot of like how it came up through violin i never had a technical teacher growing up i never did like like scales and lessons and like never did etudes it was always rep it was always like youth orchestra stuff or chamber music through artaria and then when it got to college everybody was talking about technique scale Mm -hmm. systems how many kreutzers have you done or whatever etude book that you worked through or like that just became such a huge part of my life going through college afterwards i see or just like talking about it is just like needing to do all the technical stuff especially Mm -hmm. when going for orchestra jobs everybody talks about oh your intonation has to be stellar rhythm has to be unforgivably strict whatever everybody has these like kind of strict ways of approaching music and then i kind of realized with my last teacher yunshin the yunshin song she was concert master of detroit at the time and then now she's concert master of houston she was talking a lot about how she hears all these things i'm going for while i'm playing but there's no joy there's no character uh-huh. the color is not as vibrant because all i'm focused focused on is how correct I am with that drone or how tight I am with the metronome. Right. And then you just kind of lose sense of what music really should mean or what it should do for a person listening to it. Like, yes, when I hear somebody play a mock audition or a proper audition, like, yeah, I guess I'm listening for intonation and rhythm and quality of sound and all that stuff. But frankly, if it doesn't move me or if I don't hear what you want or something that you're going for through your playing or your music, I find... A point of view, in other words? Yeah, 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 yeah. 
a very distinct point of view, then I kind of lose all interest and I'm just not very excited anymore. I think one of the points of doing any sort of like art is to have your one point of view projected through whatever form that you've chosen. I think that's pretty agreeable of a statement. Yeah. So definitely maybe maybe looking back and the reason I'm inspired by these people is because like after losing my way, like they Yunshin and Pearsov definitely helped me find like that joy again. And really yeah brings back a lot of like happiness when I'm working on music too like when I prepare for auditions now yes there is that time that I put in with the drone and the metronome I need to have that as rock solid and airtight as possible but at the end of the day whoever's listening to me is getting bored or I'm not producing color as vibrantly as possible or what have you then what's really the point why am I doing this thing? Yeah, well, and also, like, especially at a certain hustle age, I'll put mm. it, because, I mean, that can happen at any point for any person, musically speaking. There's oh, a yeah. hustle age where you have to bind yourself with the drone and bind yourself with the metronome yeah. to just get that exoskeleton so yeah. yes. correctly postured. But then there's an age where you can let go of that because you created such a great mm. structure for yourself Yeah, that yeah. it's building around all the other, I mean, connective yeah. tissue. I'm going with this not, analogy not, not to demote any of that but, work yeah you know like, no 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 but right, it's, yeah, i yeah, think right but i mean it, it's also good as you're saying to remind yourself of it because sometimes you can yeah you know, as, as you age you lose a little bit of of that but you of what you want yeah, your final thing to be definitely it's just it's like it's just weird phases of our lives that we i think all mm-hmm. musicians at some point go through yeah um, yeah well, I'm going to add another little log onto our fire right now because uh-huh. we were we were settling in a good like marshmallow melting area yeah. of the Spitfire. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. Is, which is great. <laughs> Certainly but not we'll, spitting we'll t- anymore. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> but we'll, we'll obviously circle back and talk about some of these things in your origin story. Most transformative performance experience? Hmm. When me and my quartet at CIM played at the Happy Dog Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland. Um, <laughs> What's the story? We were called the Windsor Quartet. The Cavani Quartet encouraged everybody to come up with a name for their quartet, which sure. is fun. It was yeah. me, Dylan Walsh, Matt Ross, and Logan Daly. Dylan Walsh was violinist, Matt Ross was violist, Logan Daly was a cellist. And this restaurant bar place, kind of a divey kind of place, this freelancer, Ariel Karras, who was also went to CIM, set up this program called Classical Revolution, where we would go play oh. at Happy Dog. Yes. Um, okay. This place where you could order beer, and you could order a hot dog with, like, all sorts of different smorgasbord toppings on it you get you know the normal like chili cheese or you get like fruit loops on it uh yeah you could make yeah the normal hot dog or some crazy monstrosity if you so chose so desired yeah yeah yeah. and anyways the four of us had a beer and then we got on and it's just one of those moments where you kind of just you're all just kind of feeling it you're all on the same wavelength and you feel good and you're there to have fun and then you just kind of play and we played the harp quartet and all of us were just kind of like looking at each other eyes during the piece really having a good time and everything came together really well and like after the violin solo after after the Uh last cadence of the first movement the entire bar exploded in like yelling and applause like it was like one of the only times that like with classical music you get that reaction which is kind of sure that's what that's the kind of reaction you want normally but of course yeah yeah normal classical music audiences are so repressed and kind of (laughs) strict but it was like it was so satisfying having it in that 
that setting with you know people that are at this bar not looking to hear this kind of music and then going insane because we were having such a good time on stage yeah i mean that totally ties into this whole like idea of like just the joy of making music and like what's happening in your mind on stage is what's translated through the performance that's awesome i've always said that i wish for every one of my performances to feel like a sight reading chamber music party absolutely but i know yeah. i know you guys weren't sight reading in that moment right but yeah. essentially that atmosphere that you captured in that story is exactly what i love about playing mm. too yeah it's like yeah. everyone having a good time the musicians are gelling in such a way we're and expressing this amazing music and everyone's just like eating it up yeah you know yeah yeah exactly the surprising thing about like me playing at a bar is one of my favorite things well maybe not surprising but <laughs> it wasn't something i expected when i walked into sure. that bar well, that day <laughs> oh, totally and that's the thing too i think oftentimes or i don't know if this is a saying but sometimes the dress rehearsal is the more profound concert than the actual mm. concert mm -hmm. right that's what yeah. or like there's some surprising moments where you didn't think that it was going to bring chills to you and it's like we make music for those moments not necessarily for the con i mean we try for the concert yeah but yeah yeah it's, i mean those that's ones, the those ones that keep you going yeah exactly sure. yeah desert island piece of any genre so i guess along with your bread and butter oh yeah i'll choose alpine symphony oh interesting what so strauss alpine symphony is a phenomenal work and there's a very programmatic story behind the piece mm -hmm. it's like a him in on a hike through yeah. the alps why why uh, specifically that one though i don't know i think it's just because every time i listen to it i'm always like brought on this adventure yeah it's so touching that feeling of like how he creates that independent like sentimentality when he reaches that top and you hear mm -hmm. that one oboe solo and you can kind of like feel how his emotions are swirling in his own mind just like as one person on top of a mountain that he conquered you mm -hmm. know and there's certain other like personal things me Kayoko and our friend Natsuko Takashima went on a hike recently. We went, did a four-day backpacking trip in Colorado, and I listened to the summit when we were at our first summit. We did four peaks total, and on the first one, we listened to the summit solo, and like all three of us just started crying <laughs> and sobbing very, very deeply. It was just very beautiful, and just, yeah, so there's some nostalgic feelings towards it as well. But Of course. Oh, and then afterwards, when we came down from the mountain after the the fourth peak i listened to like the descent and like the sunset mm -hmm. and oh my god that vast vast string soli leading into like the twilight mm -hmm. when it just keeps like rolling and different has just such a wealth of like color and emotion in those last few moments right before the sun sets after conquering this mountain yeah it's just very emotional and i feel yeah. very alive while listening to it well, and also just miraculous how he is able to capture all of that mm, emotion. Yeah, that entire and journey. Yeah, the journey and just how it feels along the way and yeah, those moments. Yeah. And that like yeah. go get him attitude right at the beginning, like <laughs> right, and then and then like somewhere along the line you hear like all this doubt and like fear, yeah, and that tension in the in the in the wind and yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. it's amazing. Yeah. Well, congratulations, you've made it through the Spitfire questions. Nice, nice. Bravo. Oh, bravo. It's not the... Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes. All right. John, can you walk me through your musical origin story? How did you yeah. discover a violin? When did you decide that you're going to 
pursue that professionally mm. and then walk me through all your education and all the steps along the way to where you are today. Well, I first saw the violin when I was at my brother's piano recital. He was 10 or 11. I was, I think, three or four. And my brother's piano teacher's wife uh, was a violin teacher. And she, the first half of the recital was the piano students. And the second half was the violin students. And I saw the violin. And I don't remember any of this. This is all told by my mom. I pointed at the violin. I said, I would like to play that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so she brought me to their house. And they originally said I was, I think, too small for the one-eighth size or whatever smallest mm-hmm. violin they had. So they had me playing on these tennis rackets with these dowels just so I could okay. have, like, the shape right yeah and then it's with pauline berriman i I think she's probably passed away now but she was a very sweet like neighborhood violin teacher and i think she actually studied with suzuki when she was like a kid oh wow Um, so she did like the og suzuki yeah Yeah. like yeah the og (laughs) suzuki book suzuki so we did the whole suzuki mechan thing we didn't do any of the technique stuff he had in there but we just always did like the little pieces and then so i just kept taking lessons i kept getting different teachers ended up doing youth orchestra around middle school and then doing ACMS in high school for like four years. In high school, I started studying with, I think she does more Baroque violin in the Minnesota area called Lucinda Marvin, Cindy Marvin. She okay. plays in the Lyra Baroque Orchestra. She teaches at McPhail and mm-hmm. she also breeds, I think, Border Collies. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. cute. Yeah, we st- I stayed with her for a long time. And then my original plan was just to get into college with violin. My parents were kind of standoffish about the whole idea of me doing music. I mean, I was pretty good in high school, but I wasn't some, like, big talent among, like, the people I was growing up with that making a living doing violin was going to be, like, a very guaranteed thing. <laughs> Especially what in the you- eyes of, like, mid- uh, like, immigrant Chinese parents. Of course, yeah. yeah. What, what did your parents want you to do? Oh, they wanted of... some hard science or some just the normal okay. things. Become a doctor or a lawyer or do something academic. My dad yeah. is a professor at the University of Minnesota for mm. sociology. And my mom was just stayed at home and take care of us. Yeah, they wanted me to do more of something more academic. And so I said I was just going to use violin to get... And I truly thought I was just going to get in with violin and then transfer out. And then after the first year of taking lessons and, like, just doing music stuff, I kind of realized I just really really don't like reading and I really don't like doing homework um and I'm pretty good at this violin thing I'm just gonna keep doing it um oh I I went to college at Boston University and oh, okay. I studied with this old Russian teacher Yuri Mazurkevich he studied with David Oistrakh back in the day what a yeah. lineage yeah, yeah. Suzuki to David Oistrakh he was a great teacher but he's very demanding but also in this kind of like fatherly kind of way um very encouraging but pushed us very hard and demanded always a little better than what we had to give so back then in undergrad i my all my goals were just to do chamber music i was doing three or four chamber music groups a semester because Mm -hmm. for whatever reason the chamber music department allowed that Um, yeah (laughs) i wasn't playing a lot of concertos i was always learning sonatas instead and that was what i thought i wanted my like musical life to be was to do like a quartet like join a series quartet and then do Mm -hmm. that life and then i got into cim for grad school where i stayed with bill crucial which cim cleveland institute of music where it was for the longest time a huge chamber music exactly yeah it's like the one of the places to go for chamber music. yeah yeah like moreau came from there and Omer and 
Okay. Yeah, a lot of a lot of really successful quartets came out of there, so I wanted to go there. I applied for Bill Prusso because a lot of people told me that that was a very prestigious uh, studio to get into, so I applied for him. I actually didn't know very much about him before applying for him, and then I mean I heard his playing, so I always thought he was a great player and stuff. But right. uh, it's one of the gaps in knowledge. Anyways, well, I, sh- yeah. is it okay if I explain him a little bit? Yeah, of course. I know. I'm sorry to. No, no, no. I mean, I've come I mean, to terms he... with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, in, in our musical community, especially when the Me Too movement came out, there's a select few people that were pointed out as people who have overstepped any boundaries, a student-to-teacher boundaries, and unfortunately, Bill Prusel was pointed out. And Bill Prusel used to mm-hmm. be the concertmaster of the Cleveland Orchestra, as well as the first violinist of the Cleveland String Quartet. So he, he had a huge role of power in music, in violin playing, and in and so anyway i mean i think he's been found guilty for yeah yeah i think he's yeah yeah, he wrote some apology in the press release that cleveland orchestra released and he's no longer in the cleveland orchestra either yeah so i have to point it out that especially for women in music just mm. to be very careful and to make sure you stand up for yourselves and if you think that there's some transgression that's happening even if it's from your teacher or someone that's of power just really stick to your rights and Mm. your own dignity of, of things rather than deferring it's not that I'm saying that it's the women's fault. It's really Bill's fault for taking advantage of this power dynamic. Mm. But I think I've also been very, it's very much yeah. the threats that he mounted were, right. I don't know if they were able to be substantiated, like saying that people would never get hired ever again. Right. If, if they wouldn't, you know, hang Do out these. with him. That's an overly light way to say it. But Right. Yeah. Well, anyway, I guess I suppose I'm just saying always reach out to other people and there's always other allies that are out there and not mm. just mm, this one person that will yeah. show you how the ropes are. Yeah, we don't we don't I just figure I feel like I have to talk. <laughs> no, about no, it. I think I'm it's sorry absolutely that... a disclaimer that you should be saying. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So you went to CIM and studied with him. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And obviously me being a male creates a very different dynamic for me to operate in. All I have to talk about is music and how to make better music there. And I don't have right. to navigate any other advances or topics or what have you that a female might have to anyways yeah so i went to cim thinking i really wanted this quartet career and then i went to the cleveland orchestra concerts like the first week and i remember just being like holy moly how is it that refined i just couldn't Mm -hmm. believe the sound that i was hearing that was like 80 to 90 individuals all making this finely crafted sound it was just so mind-blowing to me it was gave you such a feeling of just like massive massive chamber music not in the way that a quartet can kind of ebb and flow but the way that like this gigantic group of people could create such a refined moment with sound and i remember just that blowing my mind and feeling like yeah damn I really want to do that too. I've never been a violinist that has really enjoyed solos stuff or competition stuff or doing recital work. It's like all on me. I don't know. I've never been a violinist that really enjoyed the spotlight too much. Always been far more comfortable in the second violin role. Not only just because, let's be honest, the part is easier, but also, (laughs) (laughs) but also like the role that the sure, but also the role that the second violin fills. I like navigating the sound within it rather than pushing a ceiling on top of it. I understand. Um, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. 
yeah, so after that, orchestra just kind of consumed me. Me and my buddy, Michael Harper, we used to go to concerts like two, three times a weekend because we would always get free tickets and we would get to see our, our teachers play, you know? Yeah, so so after that, orchestra really became such a focus and like such an obsession, especially around this entire time. Like this is around when like Berlin Phil was their digital concert hall had been going for a bunch of years just kept down devouring more and more orchestra stuff as like grad school went on learning like how to take auditions how to navigate that entire process and how unbelievably demoralizing that process can be (laughs) at all times which we which we mentioned (laughs) earlier yeah (laughs) yeah i mean if anybody has a better idea of how to do any of this that'd be great but Yeah, just learning about excerpts as well. I know a lot of people hate excerpts, but there's something I really enjoy about them. Like, they're all, like, kind of these little puzzles that you have to, you know, figure out. They're all, like, these, each of them are their own, like, little Rubik's Cube that you need to figure out. Each excerpt has its own little goal that you need to achieve, (laughs) and you need to find your way of achieving it, whether it be brilliance or a certain color or a certain feeling or pacing a certain tempo or having a certain character brought out a certain way. I always enjoyed that a lot about excerpts is how you had a very clear North Star and you had to achieve it in this little frame. Maybe that's a little bit too romantic about this. this No, I interesting. (laughs) No, what's interesting though is I feel like some of my other guests who have won major orchestral auditions all speak of excerpts in this way. They've decoded or gotten rid of this anxiety or like this mental block on Mm, what the excerpt is, and they've they've redefined what that is for themselves. Right, or just like how to work on them with some feeling of like music. Just finding a way to play an excerpt to the point where the listener can hear everything around it, I think is always the goal, which is always achieved through like character or color rather than intonation and rhythm. Mm -hmm. Anyways, after obsessing about orchestra for a long time, I wasn't very successful in my auditions the second year of grad school when I started taking them. My first one was Kansas City Symphony. And I remember arriving at Kansas City feeling very good about myself, getting in the warm up room and feeling like very cold, very unsure of myself. And then the guy, comes and grabs you and he takes you to the stage and I walked out on stage and instantly was just like so shaking in my boots mm-hmm. and like I had no idea what was going on I was looking around you're in this giant room facing this curtain and you know there's a bunch of people listening to you on this other side and then he's like whenever you're ready and just feeling like you need to fill this cavern and yeah. I remember bringing the violin up starting playing and just being like this is not gonna go well <laughs> 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 I get through like maybe two-thirds of the first page of Mozart 5 and instantly I hear someone behind the screen go thank you could we move to the excerpts please oh wow okay. <laughs> Like, it was such a feeling of, like, I have already defeated myself so soundly. And, like, this person just, you know, I'm not I'm not faulting them or anything. But just, like, hearing that voice telling me to move on and instantly knowing it's because I sound like crap. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And it, that being unbelievably humbling and unbelievably, like, gives you, like, a perspective of how hard you need to execute and prepare. And I guess it didn't really, like, demoralize me. I felt so defeated and, like, downtrodden, but also being like, well, I just gotta go prove that guy wrong. Right. (laughs) I definitely know I can do this, and I know I want this, and I know I just crapped the bed, but... (laughs) 
I definitely want to crush this. I'm very much a person, like, if somebody tells me I can't do something, I will use all the spite in my body to yes. do that thing. And that, <laughs> I remember... The same way. <laughs> yeah. I remember feeling that so clearly when I, like, walked off the stage being like, I'm going to prove this experience wrong. And I'm yeah. going to go do my thing. Yeah. Just got to go keep trucking. So, anyways, that was the end of CIM in grad school. After that, I went to the University of Michigan to go pursue a specialist degree they call it it's like a performance diploma anyways all i had to do was take lessons i had to do one year of orchestra and chamber music and then i had to do like one elective and that was it and that's where i studied with david halen who is the concert master of st louis symphony and i had known him for several years at that point because i went to aspen and i studied with him there and then also mm-hmm. yunshin song who was the concert master of detroit at the time and so that was a lot of work talking about orchestra stuff, what people are looking for on auditions, how to achieve those goals I had, and like also trying to get a, like a lot of experience playing with orchestras. I had gotten a sub position with St. Louis through an audition, and then Yunshin asked me to sub in Detroit a couple times. That's how I got on the tour and stuff. And just learning like what kind of playing that is and how to approach it mentally, and using also those experiences like rehearsing in performing an orchestra and trying to translate those feelings into the audition. There's a certain way of like playing, I think, where you can you feel comfortable playing with something that you're hearing. And yeah. I think that is a big part of orchestra auditions. Hearing somebody play and knowing that you can play with this person. Mm-hmm. That they're in like an inviting presence yeah. in their playing. Yeah, and after that, uh, that was from 2016 to 2018, and then in 2018, in January 8th, I remember, because it was Kyoko's birthday, I Aww. won the Milwaukee Symphony audition, and then since 2018, I've been here, playing concerts and having a good time, trying to make the best of the orchestra, both play good orchestra music, and also try to inspire people around me in orchestra, which is something I think people kind of lose sight of, and you know, taking auditions here and there, but mostly just trying to have a good time playing music, so. Yeah, sounds great. Are there yeah. any upcoming projects with the Milwaukee Symphony? We just opened a new hall, so right. our season's going to start up September 21st. After that, we have the Doors Open Milwaukee week, or, or set day. It's one day when I think a lot of buildings open their doors to people to come see like the architecture of the city, nice. and we're participating yeah. with our new building. Our building used to be the old Warner Grand Theater, um, mm-hmm. where they used to you know show movies back in the sixties and seventies. But a lot of older Milwaukee-born people, born and bred people, talking about how they used to go watch movies when like they were kids back there. It's sure. kind of awesome that we get to like refurbish this hall and use it for Absolutely. something new. Well, that sounds awesome. Are you ready to take a break? Yeah, sure. We can take a break. Okay, we'll be right back. Hey, so before we continue on with the next segment, I wanted to be sure to say to my listeners to please drink responsibly. Make sure you are 21 years of age or older to enjoy a beverage. And if you found yourself to have overindulged in any way, please drink many glasses of water, eat some food, maybe take a couple milligrams of ibuprofen and get home safely. Don't drink and drive folks. On that note, let's get going to the rest of the show. Welcome back 
from the break. So we are going to be talking about your joy of making cocktails. Before we get going, we both have made cocktails on either side. And I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you, what did you make yourself? Well, you started with, made... as you say, you started with a Negroni. Yes, I was sipping on a Negroni during part one to loosen nice. my nerves a little bit. Oh, <laughs> so a Negroni has gin. Gin suit vermouth and Campari. Yes. Yeah. And now I made a made a gin martini. Ooh, nice. Um, what gin? I used Ford's gin this time. Mm-hmm. Um, I really I really like gin yes. over all other liquors, but yeah, gin martini with a twist, a little bit heavier on the vermouth, so it's a little bit more fragrant. Well, this is a funny little side tangent, but I was trying to convince uh-huh. one of my friends, Nora Doyle, past guest as well, of starting a martini club because she had never had a martini before. Oh, and then yeah? you can play around with the ratios a bit and you could play around with the kinds of gin or kinds of vodka or the yeah. kinds of vermouths. Kinds so of vermouth. Anyway. You can make yeah. your own vermouth. You right. Use different bitters in it. Yeah. 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 So Sometimes anyway. People add bitters. Or, you know, garnishes too. So anyway, mm-hmm. you can get all kinds of fancy with mm-hmm. your, yeah. uh, martinis. But yeah, I, what did you make? I decided to make the most fancy cocktail I have in my cupboard at the current moment it looks like a negroni it's not it's a naked and famous oh that's with mezcal right and aperol that's correct and chartreuse and chartreuse yellow chartreuse yes although i accidentally bought green chartreuse but Did but it, it is How... it, i mean it's, it's fine yeah i, yeah, I yeah. taste i taste it it's a delicious drink but uh-huh. definitely a sipper as you can see i even put a giant piece of ice inside nice. so yeah all right cheers 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 how do we i admit i Anyway, yeah. so how did you get into making cocktails? Like, what was the backstory behind that? Well, I've always liked cocktails more than other alcoholic drinks. Beer like, always kind of weighed me down. I'm very much over the entire IPA craze. I don't know. I can't do IPAs anymore. Okay. And, like, wine is great, too, but it's so expensive to have good wine. And it's such an expensive hobby to, like, kind of delve into. But cocktails, something about it is so fun to me and interesting like this weird like mad scientist quality about it of you like taming these like really hard to drink things like a lot of people love drinking bourbon but whenever I drink bourbon it's like so much flavor and like the burn of the alcohol and it hits your tongue this really rough way and then like when you add all these other like liqueurs that are like so bitter mm-hmm. and like syrupy and they're like almost acrid and like you shake them with ice and you like get a bunch of air in it and you have this like beautiful little cocktail that looks it has this like beautiful color and it has like a cool garnish and it smells interesting because of the whatever citrus peel you put on it yeah something very fun about it i first got into it i think two years ago alejandro bought me as a christmas present the cocktail codex Mm -hmm. which was made by these guys who started this bar death and co they have Mm -hmm. a bar in i think in new york and denver yeah we went to the one in denver they have one in la but that book had like a very clear thesis and like guide about cocktails and how to make them and how to expand cocktail repertoire and like Mm -hmm. how to create like a bar where you can make lots of different cocktails with you know select bottles of liqueurs Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. liquors and yeah just as we made more and more and more of them at home over the pandemic because you know we can't go to bars and like get these craft cocktails from these great bartenders um as you made more it just became more and more interesting and like more and more fun especially once you build a bar that has several different choices that you can draw from what we would do is we just like flip through this book and then find new cocktails that we didn't know we had that we could make right and we have 
amazing, beautiful drinks. And yeah, it was just like uh, such a, especially over the pandemic, such a period of like discovery of this, these things that I had no idea existed and like, you know, drinking super fun. So. Sure, right. <laughs> right, right, right. So I think the hardest part of maintaining a versatile cocktail experience at my place mm-hmm. is the fact that you need so many ingredients, yeah. right? So what are some of the basics that you would have or try to continue Ooh. to always have with your bar? For me, always a gin and vodka mm-hmm. and a bourbon. Those three, I think every bar needs to have all the time because from those you have so many different things you can make. And then like, even if you just like add in rum as well, rum is this crazy world of tiki things and also other kind co- well, sorry, I'm darker. But I, I would say like a bottle of Aperol goes really far. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Aperol is an important middle point between Campari or on the bitter yes. side. But Aperol yeah. is kind of like a really like, good middle center of this is a little bit bitter, but not so much that you're going to like spit it out. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can make all sorts of different drinks with Aperol. You can make those very almost syrupy, bitter Italian cocktails. Mm-hmm. And also like those effervescent one like spritzes. Aperol spritz is Kyoko's Just... favorite drink. Oh my God. Oh, it's so delicious. Yeah. And so Aperol simple. spritz in like the bright sun it's like Mm -hmm. a perfect afternoon i think i once Um, called it the nectar of summer yeah (laughs) exactly it it looks and tastes like sunshine that liqueur goes really far a bottle of sweet vermouth also you can do a lot of things with because that can also take into like negronis and americanos and all sorts of other italian cocktails but also you can make manhattans Mm-hmm. And also all the all these things that are related to Manhattans, you can also just make a like a low alcoholic like sweet vermouth cocktail with like just sweet vermouth and some Angostura bitters. Yeah, so I don't know Aperol and sweet vermouth. I find I use all the time. Dry vermouth always for martinis because I really like drinking martinis when they're very good and they're very cold. Yes, they are so unbelievably smooth. Yes, and also like velvety and silky in texture. Like a martini is like what like five and a half five ounces four. Four to five ounces of liquid. You can drink a martini so quickly and so smoothly. <laughs> I know it's a little bit dangerous. It's unbelievably deceiving because it's yeah. just two shots of liquor, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and you can drink it in like fourteen seconds. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> like when they're like super smooth. Uh, yeah. yeah. When we went to Death and Co in Denver, the first drink that I ordered was a martini. I think that's a like, good test of places, though. Yeah, absolutely. Because when I first got this book, the first thing I wanted to learn how to do well was make a martini. And there were lots of nights where like Kyoko is very much an early bird. And so she goes to bed at like nine o'clock. And when she's in bed, I'm like making martinis by myself. (laughs) And I'll have like four or five of them and just be like pissed drunk. But also trying to be very, very quiet so as to not wake (laughs) up Kyoko. (laughs) And just like making them over and over and like trying to figure out how to balance them. I should talk a little bit about making martinis and like the process. Sure. So this book, The Cocktail Codex, they also have their own like standalone death and cocktail book but cocktail codex is the one that i think won like a james beard award they talk about making cocktails having these three fundamental parts which is the core the balance and the seasoning Mm -hmm. so every cocktail kind of follows these three building blocks in order to create a drink and a martini if we were to look at the core would be the base liquor which would be either gin or vodka more traditionally gin the balance would be the vermouth which is a scented wine to support the gin and then the seasoning is sometimes just a dash of of orange bitters if it's gin or little olive juice from dry martini and so it's like the play of these three things plus temperature and also dilution right like i think that's one big thing that people don't realize about cocktails like a 
third to half of it is like water and yeah. air, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh-huh. So martinis, you more traditionally stir them. Unless you're James Bond and you Unless want a weaker drink. Unless you're James Bond and you want a terrible martini. No, no. Exactly. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> traditionally, you stir a martini because then it creates that like silky texture and you don't have all this air in it to kind of bring out that like alcohol burn. Yeah. So like when you're stirring it, the friction and like it tumbling around in that mixing glass actually dilutes a lot of the liquor. The else begins to melt. And then it's the mixture of these two things plus the cold temperature that creates that like really silky smooth but also like fragrant drink, which is a martini. I know. Something I just about... love that simplicity though, you know? Yes, exactly. And it's, it's so clear. Yeah. And it's balanced so delicately when it's done well. Like if you dilute it too too much, if you mix in too much water into it, the flavor is like lost. Like the scent of the vermouth and like kind of the herbs and spices and the botanicals the of the yeah, the yeah. botanicals of the gin are lost and mm-hmm. you know the whatever lemon peel you express over it is kind of lost too and it right. tastes very loose versus if you don't dilute it enough the burn is so strong because all it is is just gin pure alcohol yeah, yeah gin and yeah yeah you get all the flavor but it's so raw and it like punches your tongue really hard and it's but if you get it right in between all that on this like beautiful little like balancing point it becomes like so velvety and so smooth and you get all these fragrances is ah it's just beautiful and it's such a delight to drink too because it hits your tongue and it kind of washes over your mouth and like it's not like when you swallow other alcohols or like when you swallow a shot it's like yeah. burn and you're just holding on for dear life yeah like, i'm oh, not a shot make, don't I'm... make a face or else my friends will think i'm like such a wuss yeah know? right <laughs> yeah 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 i i'm really not a shot person yeah yeah i, yeah. I, I feel that's like you're definitely... wasting the alcohol in certain ways right like right yeah. that's definitely much for effect rather than absolutely pleasure. Yeah. yeah, business rather than pleasure. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I really enjoyed when making cocktails this like alchemist quality where you're taming these like really bitter and like acrid and burning like things that are really not palatable, I think. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's very fun, especially like me and Kyoko love entertaining guests. And we love having people over it. And I love, like, making people drinks at home. Especially because, like, everybody only drinks cocktails really out at bars and stuff. And it's, like, a different mood. And sometimes they're not made very carefully if you're at the wrong bar. And But at home, it's a different feeling. It's, like, when I make this thing and I give it to you, it's, like, very much... I it's, like, know. a piece of care and, and love for yeah. that person. Yeah, very much the same way that cooking does for me and Kayako. Like, we also love to cook for people. Yeah. We talked a lot about bars and bar upkeep. You did mention for a split second about rum. You have all the recipes for all these tiki drinks. So can you Oh yeah. Can that you was... elaborate on this? Because I have never made a tiki drink in my life. Right. And I know it's a lot more involved <laughs> than just your standard martini. Yeah, I that was the second Christmas gift that Ali got me. The next Christmas was at the cocktail book Smuggler's Cove mm. on all the tiki drinks. Smuggler's um, Cove? Yeah, in San Francisco. In San Francisco. Right? You, yeah, I yeah, went yeah. there on my birthday. Sorry, I just like... Oh, it's really? Such a, yeah. <laughs> right. After reading all this stuff online and reading it's the book. It's so much fun. It is. Yeah. yeah. That's one of the places I really want to go. Like one of the bars. Oh, that I we really should go. go let's, in the country. let's. It's supposed to be like unbelievably authentic tiki experience. It is. It talks about the history of tiki and like. Uh, I got the flaming punch anyways. bowl on my birthday. So. Yeah. 
yeah. All we've all we've made so far out of that book is my ties because yeah. rum is like unbelievably intimidating to yes. me. Yes. Because Same. there are so many different styles, so many different ages, so many different applications for these different flavors, and also almost every tiki cocktail has nine to eighteen ingredients or whatever. Yes. Like so many different rums in the same drink to create all these Complex. spiced and nutty and flavors and like all these different syrups you have to make it was very overwhelming <laughs> so all we made was Mai Tais which were unbelievable the Mai Tais are so tasty both like citrusy and nutty and also like all those rum flavors those like rich rum flavors and they're also like so smooth and easy to drink because but most Mai Tais is, are super sweet I grew up drinking Bacardi Blanco uh, yeah. or whatever and I would put Coke with it that was one yeah. of my first like drinks that I had in undergrad and I feel like that is the stereotype that or Malibu or whatever is the stereotype yeah. for rums or mm-hmm. even maybe Captain Morgan or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I had Sailor Jerry growing up. That came in a plastic bottle. I yeah, remember. you know, yeah. so yeah. It's actually of recent that Alejandro introduced me to like plantation rum. Like, yeah, plantation and some, big, yeah. Yeah, and like some other much higher end rums that yeah. I I could sip. Like I mm. I thought before it would just burn my tongue off, you know, that kind right. of thing. Like Appleton has a few really great rums and then like there's this one Denizen's Reserve is like the one the Smuggler's Cove guy actually like developed mm. to taste like the original Ray and Sons rum. Like there's so much lore regarding rum of literally just like sailors from Jamaica or Martinique or all these other Caribbean islands and they all taste different. They're all aged and created differently. It's pretty nuts that world. It's very difficult to get into it. I'm going to delve more into the Smuggler's Cove book eventually. Yeah. But I can't do it without having like 26 bottles and then making like five different syrups. Yeah. Like one of the one of the most important syrups is like Orjat, which is basically like almond milk syrup. We made their recipe in the book, but it made like six cups of syrup. And like, yeah, the recipe only co- calls for like a quarter ounce. And I'm not going to make like 256 yeah. <laughs> Mai Tais <laughs> in, it, in like, like a month, you know. Does it stay? Yeah, it, it ended up splitting, but like, oh, okay. mix, yeah, yeah. It says it lasts for four to six weeks. But even then, I'm not drinking like yeah. 200 drinks, you know. Exactly. Um, yeah, I guess I'm just asking about the syrups, though, because I didn't realize how many specialized syrups mm. that you either have to create. Like, you can't buy these things, yeah. right? Oh, you can. They have like commercial products. But I mean, like most cooking things, like if you just make it at home, you can always make a better product because most of these things have like stabilizers and stuff. And sure. The flavor kind of dies out. Like, Orja is a very fragrant syrup because it's supposed to both be really nutty because of the almond milk, but also it's mixed with like orange flower and rose water. Wow. And those fragrances can die off, you know, pretty Of course, quickly. yeah. Yeah, so it is like a very distinct taste. I don't get how these people came up with this stuff. Like, they talk about this original bar, Trader Vic's, that created like the original Mai Tai. And this guy must have had so much time on his hands like, <laughs> to create all these different things like these different like scorpion bowls or singapore slings Mm -hmm. or you know navy grogs and these all have like you know three quarter of an ounce of dark rum plus an ounce and a half of a light jamaican rum and like he must have had such an incredible palate to be able to take all these different really strong tasting ingredients and create these like great cocktails you know that last for years and people still like rave about 
So outside of tiki drinks that you've dived in, I guess mainly mm. a Mai Tai, what's the most complicated drink you've ever made? Oh, it was actually something that I got that my brother sent me from a bar in Minnesota called an Oliveto. This cocktail had like an egg white, olive oil, gin, salt serum, simple syrup. You had to dry shake it and then shake it up. It tasted So a dry shake, let's just explain a little terminology. A dry shake. Haskell. It was from Haskell's Bar oh, in Minnesota. Okay. Oh, and liqueur 43, which is... Like a very specific liquor. It tastes like burnt caramel. Oh. But, anyways, it's two ounces of dry gin. They used Martin Miller's, which is a really, really, really good gin. That stuff is so smooth and so light, but also botanical. You can sip it straight with like no ice. So, they used two ounces of Martin Miller's, one ounce of lemon juice, a quarter ounce of simple syrup, a quarter ounce of this liqueur 43, half an ounce of extra virgin olive oil, and one egg white. A bar spoon of saline solution. It was, yeah. Oh, there we go. Okay. But Basically, still, that's just a... salt just to bring out the flavor. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, especially with yeah. the egg. So a dry shake is without ice. And usually mm-hmm. you do a yeah. dry shake with an egg white, if you're going to put an egg mm-hmm. white in a drink. So Yeah, just and to that's... begin the whipping process and kind of... Right distribute the alcohol and citrus through it so that it's not going to give any food poisoning. <laughs> That's right. Although, I mean, it's a pretty low risk of getting food poisoning from egg white. Yeah, egg, but, egg whites yeah. are really safe, yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. the reason why people add egg white to certain cocktails is for mm. the extra texture in your mouth, too. Yeah. They're the proteins that, that kind of coat yeah. your mouth a little bit. That but. really rich kind of like like viscous velvetiness. Right. It's a very rich right. texture and like yes. kind of coats a lot. We just yeah. made these cocktails yesterday called white ladies it was one of the things that like we just like flipped over in the book and we're like oh we can make this oh, i forgot what was in it It was like gin and cointreau and lemon juice and egg white and something else but anyways yeah it gives you this like unbelievably like velvety texture mm-hmm. but you do need to shake it quite a lot firmly because you want like a lot of foam on the top that's, that's another right. marker of a great like egg white cocktail lots of foam with a thick mm-hmm. head Super. yeah haskell's from the olivetto from haskell's i never had olive oil in a cocktail before before. What did it um, taste like? But this, man, it tasted unbelievable. Well, at first it was very rich just because the egg white and the olive oil. And it yeah. was like, it was still very rich and velvety. But it tasted like like this citrusy, almost like an orange creamsicle. Oh. Very rich the way that like a milkshake is rich. But mm-hmm. also like fruity because of the gin and the lemon. Sure. It was a great drink. So before we move on to the next segment, I mean, this is going to be a two-part question, two-part answer. So my main question is, what's your most favorite drink to make for people? And mm. with the intent that this is a drink that you would give your best friend to, to have a really good time. Well, paper planes are always good. Ooh, what's that? Paper, paper planes are like bourbon, Amaro, Aperol, and lemon juice in equal parts, shaken up for like 15, 20 seconds. They're like very bright tasting, very citrusy but also like a lot of core middle part because of the bourbon and the bourbon's like a really rich liquor it has like this really beautiful sunset dark orange color because mm-hmm. of the brown from the bourbon and the aperol oh, the, and yeah. the lemon juice right. like lightens it up mm-hmm. so it has a really beautiful color and it tastes really good my brother told me this one bartender sometimes makes it with mezcal instead of bourbon and makes it like this like smoky citrusy okay sunshine tasting thing that's really tasty paper planes are really good but i guess it depends on the person not everyone likes bourbon but still i mean I yeah guess... and i wouldn't even describe this one as like a very bourbony drink it's not like an old-fashioned where it's like very heavy on the taste buds mm-hmm. it is still very like effervescent and very sunshiny but it's still very rich tasting which is tasty that's usually a pretty good one for everybody and something like that or this other drink called like a crop top 
Oh. Which is something that this guy, Devin Tarby, I think, made. It was in the book. Have you had one before? No. I've never had either of these drinks. It's with, like, grapefruit liqueur, gin, amaro, and lemon juice. It's, like, a very similar... It's the exact same kind of idea as the paper plane, but just, like, different liquors and liqueurs. Mm -hmm. It's also, like, a very, like, sunshiny kind of drink. The grapefruit liqueur, like, if you use Giffard, G-I-F-F-A-R-D, it's, like, really, really smooth tasting, but also very citrusy and sweet. It just tastes like a good time. Very happy, very sunshiny. Great for having, like, starting the evening off. Usually, like, first drink of the night, you don't want anything very heavy, like a right. old-fashioned or a Manhattan. Well, unless Sometimes you really like need it you in your life. Like, <laughs> <laughs> unless, unless something really happened in your life, then you're yeah, like, give unless me Unless you're very sad, yeah. yeah. You need to forget something. But if I'm going to start off... I don't know. I think cocktails all just kind of set a mood. And that first drink really sets it off very quickly. So I I like to try to give somebody something more citrusy and mm-hmm. something more effervescent. Tom Collins is always good. Yeah. Because that's very light, mm-hmm. and all, but also boozy. Or something like a sidecar. That one mm-hmm. is like a little richer. It's like cognac and Cointreau and lemon juice. But it's like very citrusy when it's cold. But then as it warms up a little bit, like kind of those cognac flavors come out more. And then mm-hmm. kind of like changes as it warms up. Mm-hmm. That's a very fun cocktail. Yeah. I don't know. I just like using these cocktails to create certain moods in the night. Yeah, that's like at the root of like a lot of what Kyle and I like to do. My parents used to host a lot of dinner parties growing up. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Chinese community in Minnesota was so small back then when I was in like middle school um, that we had like this small group of like five Chinese families and all the kids were about the same age. So it was like every Saturday we would have this giant potluck. And, like, I would watch my mom work so hard to have the highest level of hospitality to anybody that came over to our home. Mm-hmm. And that was always something that, like, really affected me a lot. It was, like, how she took care of these people, like, when they, like, came in the door. Yes. And I very much, even, like, in undergrad when I, like, had my apartment and had people over, like, that was, like, always, like, a feeling that I felt, like, had to happen. Mm-hmm. I had to take care of people who came through my door. Like, even now when, you know, Kyle going to have our home now, whoever comes into our place, like, I'm going to take care of you, you know? And you're going to have a great time. We're going to talk, have a good conversation, make some good music, watch a good movie or whatever. whatever. And you're going to drink good drinks and you're going to have good food, like... Yeah. It makes me like so happy and like delighted when somebody comes into my home and has a really good time. Yes. Well, I um, relate with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like it's just like so wonderful. Like you felt joy in my home and like we had a great time together. Yeah. Yeah. Something that brings a lot of warmth to my heart. Yeah. Well, I need to thank you for the times when I've spent with you where I feel the same. (laughs) May I transition to our final two questions? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What is one piece of advice you would tell your younger self about entering and pursuing a music career? Ooh. Don't care about what anybody thinks. The only thing that matters is that you love it more than other people and that that means you work harder than other people. Ooh. I love the twist at the end. Yeah. I mean, mean, that's when I was younger, I was very concerned about how other people, what they would think after hearing me play. Yes. Oh, God, that that. naturally, that's just like everybody's default, I think. Yeah. Is that like, that's what drives you to madness. But I knew I loved it. And I knew I loved it way more than most people. So that's the only thing that matters. And if I love it more than other people, that means I'm going to work harder to make it good. If I could just remember to focus on the fact that like when I listened to these people make classical music like and it blew my mind and my heart would gush that's the important thing to use that as fuel to work harder 
That's amazing. Of course, I relate with that so much. And I mm -hmm. think that's such invaluable wisdom for mm -hmm. anyone who's thinking about beginning a music career. So thank you for yeah. that answer. And my second question, mm -hmm. as we enter a semi-post-pandemic world, I don't really know where we are now. <laughs> when I wrote this question, it was definitely yeah. before the Delta variant. Um, Pre-Delta, yeah. Yeah. I, so whatever this means to you, what elements of your musical pandemic life would you want to continue? And what would you want to shed? Ooh. Well, what I would want to continue is remembering that there is an exponentially more to life than there is to violin. Mm. Prior Welcome to, to hiding behind the music stand. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> um, prior, prior to the pandemic... I, thinking about the schedule now, just blows me away. The fact that I would rehearse anywhere from two and a half to four and a half hours a day, have concerts on the weekends, practice my part, what have you, and then also practice violin on top of that, mm -hmm. at least an hour or two a day, outside of the orchestra rep, and to prepare for auditions. And that how that would just consume all my energy and all of my effort during the day, and then I wouldn't have too much to do outside of it. I wouldn't have the energy to, like, watch a movie and digest all, like, the themes or the beauty. And, like, how it is so helpful to be consumed by something you care so much about and want to digest something that you want to unpack endlessly, but to not have that take over. Or mm -hmm. to have, once you're done doing it for that period of time, to decompress yourself and to experience the other things around that devotion mm -hmm. in your life. I think one of the best things I did during the pandemic was just put my violin down for like two months. Mm -hmm. And two months is a long amount of time thinking about it. Like, I've never done that before since going to college for violin. Every summer was filled with summer festivals. And then right. that ran up to basically the, the season. next year of college. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or, or the season. Or, it's been like a constant burn on the violin since like 2010. Mm -hmm. And then finally, 10 years later, and like no obligations. No, and putting it down and like feeling like my shoulders could finally relax. Not only. <laughs> just because like I'm not holding an instrument anymore but just like waking up and like the day is my own mm -hmm. I don't have all these obligations that's what how I got into cocktail making or like baking bread or cooking or working out more or, you know watching more films or there's just so much outside of life that I lost perspective of well, I especially found this theme watching Chef's Table on Netflix, which is, yeah. I suggest this show to anybody. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you like food or not. I mean, it, yes. it is slightly food porn, but at the same time, it's yeah. like such a beautifully executed show with yeah. such amazing stories behind the chefs, behind these. Yeah. Anyway. Not not just like food porn, but also like artistic development porn. Correct. Right. Like. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. The common theme I found from this show was this idea of obsession and yes. i think that we also as musicians have this obsession with our art and i think the obsession comes in different levels in yeah. music school it's heightened i think to the most extreme version of this because we are forced to it's our degree we have performances we have rehearsals we don't want to disappoint anybody on the faculty we don't want to disappoint mm -hmm. each other as colleagues yeah. we want to shine brightest oh, yeah. out a of lot, everyone a lot of it for me was like i don't want somebody to 
think lowly of me. Correct. Right. Like, right. That was the gigantic driving force. Yeah. Right. I don't want people to say that I'm a bad or I'm not prepared. I'm not going to be yeah, a professional yeah. musician, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Right. So I think the idea of obsession can be seen in both a negative and positive way. And that obsession is a good thing because as you say, it's like the drive. It's that discovery. It's just the want to learn more and really love what you really find mm. most powerful for you. But then obsession, it can turn very dark very quickly. Yeah, all consuming. One of the things I realized most for me was like when I was achieving something before that I worked really hard on, I didn't necessarily feel happiness. Mm-hmm. but rather it was like relief it wasn't so much like i worked super hard on a piece for like weeks on end and i was having troubles and like i was grinding it super hard and then at the end of it if i had a successful performance it wasn't like i was so elated mm-hmm. it was more like thank god thank goodness that it came out okay which is like Ah, come on. If I worked super, super hard and like I had all these like trials and tribulations with this piece of music, I should be so stoked and like having had that final moment with it and like crushed it and done really well. And I should be like jumping to joy. Right, right. Versus like being like, oh my God, thank God. God, that didn't explode in like in face. a yeah. gigantic gas fire that it could have been. Right. Like, uh, like that, that just ruins like the magic of this pursuit. Yeah, and I think that was like a big thing preparing for auditions before. I would just grind. I was worked so hard and practice a lot and still try to get that joy and get that character. But like at the end of the day, it was like relief. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, she's like, thank God that that didn't crash and burn. Just to be relieved that something didn't go horribly wrong. Right. Because I worked hard rather than being really happy that I had a beautiful moment because I worked hard. Yeah. It kind of sullies the entire experience. That's where the dark side of obsession comes in of like, it's not never good enough. It's never going to be like, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I I feel like that's a whole other podcast that we can talk about. John, are there any other platforms or websites for listeners to learn more about you or any upcoming projects? Yeah, I mean, if you're ever in Milwaukee, come check out the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra. The website's mso.org. Yeah, come check us out. Awesome. And if you enjoyed listening, be sure to smash that subscribe button wherever you're tuning into this podcast. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. It doesn't need to be long. Your review will help others search for the podcast because of its crazy algorithms. And you'll make Sushi's day. And it's free. Make sure to share this podcast with your friends and family as well. If you want to level up, you can always become part of the Hiding Behind the Music Stand family by donating what you will on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash hideandmusicstand. Our social media handle for Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter is at hideandmusicstand. And we'd love to hear from you at our email, hideandmusicstand at gmail.com. Didn't recognize a piece we discussed during the episode? No worries. There's a Spotify playlist with all the music discussed for your convenience. The link is in the description of each episode. John, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you, and I look forward to the future times when we can hang out. Oh, thanks, Patty. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, and thanks for listening. Sushi, say bye. It's not the I need a um, I need to upgrade my instrument. It's not, <laughs> it's not the best, but yeah. So. But I've been trying to learn how to do. Um, uh, my heart will go on with this. With the slide whistle.
Wow, I've, those are some very vocal slides that you inserted. That was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. That was amazing.